0: Good evening everyone, glad to see everyone tonight and have another evening of time to look at God's word and see what he said to us, um, to learn from it, to fellowship together and then afterwards tonight again we'll, uh, we've been doing our Q&A afterwards, um, that's been I think a, uh, a fruitful time together and so we, we look forward to that as well. You have your Bibles. Um, we are in First John, so you can turn there. First John chapter two. That's where we're at. Are these lights new? <laughs> For some reason, I'm just noticing them shining in my face. Um, last time, last week, we were here. We looked at verses 15 through 17 in chapter two of First John, where John wrote to the church, reminding them not to love the world or the things in the world. Okay. The, the idea is that the church, the children of God, are to be separate from the world. Uh, the, the desire or lust, as some of your translations say, uh, the, the desire or lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life are the three categories of sinful love for the world that John talked about um, last week in those verses. And these are what natural man goes after. This is what, this is what we seek after. Uh, and it's what man loves, you know, those things of the world. He cannot love God. He's an enemy of God uh, without God intervening. Um, and, and by God's grace, he has given us a Savior in Jesus Christ. He has intervened uh, to save his children. And so um, that's a wonderful thing. And John wrote those things um, of those who do the will of the Father Uh, meaning those who come to repentance of faith in Christ for salvation, they will abide forever, he said. They have eternal life. So we see this constant contrast between the false professor of faith and the true professor of faith. Um, And those who love the world, he says, do not have uh, the love of the Father. In fact, it is that love of the world and and the love of the things in the world that prove the love of the Father is not in them. And John emphasized that the world and all its desires are passing away. Okay, they are they're already fading away. And there's, there's no hope in the love of what is temporary and worldly and dying. Okay, the world has nothing to offer but rebellion against God and eternal suffering. And even though John has these dark things to say, the point is not so the Christians can be downcast. The point is to be warned of, of potential deception and warned that those who are deceived are lost and promised uh, that, and this is the good part, the promise that being in Christ, in the truth, is salvation and hope and eternal life. Okay, so it's not so that, again, so that the Christian can be downcast. We need to see what the Scriptures say about those who falsely profess faith in Christ. They falsely profess to be in fellowship with God so we know what that looks like, so we can examine ourselves. But ultimately, we continue to see and hear John's encouragement to true Christians um, through salvation and hope um, in Christ Jesus. And that's how John continues his letter, as we'll see tonight. There, there are more dark things that he has to say, more, more things to talk about that are uh, difficult to talk about. Um, but for the Christian, again, John is offering peace. He's offering security. Now, not, I don't mean John is offering like he has some ability to give you peace and security, but the truth that John offers, right, the tr- truth of the Scriptures um, is what brings us that peace and security. For those on the outside, however, they have no such hope. Okay, so we're, we'll see that sort of contrast again tonight. And John gives more proof tonight so that everyone can know where they stand in terms of fellowship with the Father and the Son. Um, also so that Christians can understand what is going on when people who profess faith in Christ leave the church, um, who, they, who they prove to be, uh, who they prove to be serving, even? So I want to start by reading our passage for tonight, which um, we'll look at starting at verse 18 of chapter 2, and we'll go through verse 20 tonight. Um, so let's read that out. 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 20. Children. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this night. We thank you for um, another opportunity to come together as your children, as followers of Christ, Lord, seeking to hear from your word, Lord, where you have spoken to us. We thank you, Lord, for the indwelling Holy Spirit that teaches us through your word. And um, we ask tonight that you would, um, that you would do so that your word would affect our lives tonight, that we would have our hearts and our minds opened by you to receive what you've said. Um, Lord, I am grateful for the gift of your word, for the gift of the church, and the fellowship of believers. And we thank you, Lord, most of all for your son and for our salvation, that free gift that you have given through the blood of your son, or through repentance and faith, Uh, What a great gift. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy beyond anything we can imagine, Lord. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we see John referring to the readers here again as children. And again, it's not an insult, okay? Uh, We might use that these days, call somebody a child or something as an insult. But here it's uh, a term of endearment. It's a, a term of affection from John to, to the Christians. It's a way of identifying them as being Christians, as being in the faith. Okay, so that's, that's how he opens this little section here. They're used to it. It's not unfamiliar to them, and, and we've also seen it as we've been working through 1 John. And then he makes a matter-of-fact statement about what time period they're in. Okay, he's, he's not wondering out loud. He's not speculating due to confusion but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's marking out their position in uh, the scheme of God's timetable. Okay? He says, children, it is the last hour. Okay? Of course, he's not talking about the time between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. Okay? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a 60-minute a hour at all. Okay? That's not what he's doing here. He's doing something else. So I have a question. When you you have a a difficult uh, and sort of time-consuming task to do or a test to take or perhaps a message to communicate and prepare for and you only have an hour left to do it, how does that affect your actions and attitudes? You what? Hurry Hurry up, okay? Something's changed, right? Where you may have been a little lax before, now you're hurrying up. What else? I know we've all experienced this, right? A deadline. John's not putting a deadline here, but yeah. You start dreading it? Okay, well, thankfully, we don't dread this, okay? We don't dread the coming of our Lord, <laughs> okay? We look forward to that. Um, and if you, but if you knew that you had, let's say, an hour to live or an hour before something big happened that you've... Okay, a call to focus on what, what the most important thing is and what um, the most important thing to be aware of is. Okay, and here it's deceptions. remember, he's just finished with an admonishment not to love the world or the things in the world and that the world is passing away. And now he says, it's the last hour. Okay, he says it as if they're, also as if they already believe this to be true because they've already been taught this. He's not having to explain this. He just says it, right? This is the last hour. No doubt they had the other writings of Scripture where, um, this has already been made clear um, by others, so John is merely pointing out that truth. Now, for example, in First 1 Peter 1.20, he taught about Jesus and said, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So Peter's identifying the time of Christ as the last times. Okay? In other words, the coming of Christ was in the last times. Also, Paul talked about the lessons that the church should learn from looking at the lives of the, the Israelites. And he said, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay, First Corinthians 10, 11. Paul included himself there by saying for our instruction and then put himself and everyone else in the last days by saying the end of the ages had already come. Okay, so he, he identified that. The end of the ages is, is a time period of unknown length, but that doesn't make it untrue. John's talking about the, the last hour. Well, that was a long time ago that he said was the last hour, and here we are. We're still in the last hour, okay? So it's not a, a known timetable. It's a, a time period, and it's whatever God decides it is. And, and God's not waiting to make it up either. He knows the exact moment when it's done. Okay, and we can can rest assured in that. A third example of this teaching is found in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, where the author says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, these last days. Remember that Hebrews is written in the New Testament times after Christ had already come and gone. And so, so even back then, it was being acknowledged that they were in last days or here as John puts it, the last hour, which sounds even more urgent, doesn't it? It is the last hour and it has been the last hour since Christ came the first time. John's readers didn't know and we don't know how long the last hour is. We don't need to know, right? We just need to know we're in it and live as if time's almost up. And that's how we should live our lives as Christians, knowing that our Lord is coming back. We don't know when, but we should live our lives following after him, seeking to be more like him um, for as long as, we're, as we remain here. But, but do it as if it's, you know, after this Bible study. <laughs> okay, live as if we're in the last hour, because we are. Okay, we don't know when time's up. And it's the same urgency when we would share the gospel with people. We don't want to just share the gospel and say, hey, take your time. You know, no, no hurry. Now, we know that it does take people time sometimes. It takes maybe often sharing the gospel with them. But we certainly don't want to give people the impression that it's no big deal to drag their feet, right? How do we know they're not going to get hit by a bus when they hit, head out on the street? There needs to be a sense of urgency to, to a call to repentance and faith in Christ. But John points them back to this truth to make another point. Not to teach what the last hour is because... They already had that teaching, but to bring them to a place of being sober-minded in their living. There's no time to waste, basically. Be alert, in particular because of what accompanies being in the last hour, which is the presence of the spirit of Antichrist, okay? So he's going to start talking about that here. John gives a different but still scriptural example as proof they, uh, and now we, of course, are in the last hour. He ties it to the biblical teaching about the Antichrist. He says, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Okay, that is his proof, which is why he finishes verse 18 by saying, therefore we know that it is the last hour. So the fact that they've heard that Antichrist is coming and now many are here is proof. He says, that's why he says, therefore we know that it is the last hour. He's acknowledging that. He's acknowledging here and reminding them that they've already been taught about the coming of the Antichrist and his activity on the, on the world stage. They've heard that Antichrist is coming from Daniel and Zechariah, from Jesus himself, from Paul and others. They knew of this man coming in the future, this false shepherd, this man of lawlessness. But what about his agents that come before him and, in fact, are already here? That is John's focus here. And that's why he does not get into the details of, the, of who the Antichrist is or, or will be. But instead, he focuses on who he describes as the many Antichrists, plural, who have already come. Uh, John is uh, he's the only Bible author to use this word that we get Antichrist from here. Other places, the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction. This is the one who is the adversary of Christ. It's it's a term not only for the Antichrist, but anyone who's against Christ or opposes him uh, and tries to replace him. This person undermines the work of Christ, undermines the kingdom of Christ and, and the plans and purposes of Christ, or at least tries to. Right, And this includes those who claim to be Christians. Okay, there are those who claim to be Christians who would be found in this camp, unfortunately. Again, this is not so much about the Antichrist as it is about those who are associated with him in his world system. Okay, we talked about that last week when we talked about not loving the world or the things in the world. It's not about the created things that God created. He's not telling us not to love that. He's not telling us not to love the world in the sense of humanity. Of course, we need to love human beings. That's not it. It's the world system. It's the, the realm of Satan. Um, it's all those things of, of that realm, that world that we are not to love. Um, so it's not about the Antichrist as it is about those who are opposed to Christ and his kingdom right now, not just in some future time and event. Sometimes I think we forget. We can tend to live like, oh, that's, that's way off in the future Sometime. But it's a reality now that antichrists, plural, are already out in the world. They're already doing the work of Satan out in the world. And they were back in John's day as he's writing this warning to them. Okay? Um, and In his next letter, John ad- addresses um, very specifically who can be classified as an antichrist. In 2 John 1, seven, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what are they marked by? They are deceivers. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh. It sounds like the Gnostics that we talked about when we first started, right? Um, and, And also a key there is he said they're already out in the world. They've already gone out. Okay? It's not something we're waiting for. Yes, we're still waiting for um, the Antichrist. That is some future time and person. Um, but, and that will happen for sure. right? That is true. But that shouldn't allow us to then go, Oh, I'm going to sit back and we're okay for now. I'm going to wait. The work of that system is already going. Okay? Um, it's not that they kept... Part of the problem here with these that are identified as Antichrist, is not that they keep this belief to themselves. They deceive people, right, to believe and to follow after this lie. It would be bad enough if they were just off in a corner somewhere believing this themselves and, and kept to themselves. But they are going out and deceiving people with this lie, with the lies of Satan. This is what Paul warned Timothy about in 1 Timothy 4 1. He said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, why does John need to write about this? Why is it important for Christians to know that antichrists are in the world now? More than that, that they are in the church now, as that passage just indicated. He right? said, they departed from the faith. Why? Because they devoted themselves to the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So what do the teachings of demons look like? Does the new curriculum advertise on the cover, go deeper into the teachings of demons and expand your reason to depart from the faith? Is that what the teachings are going to say? No. No, how about 10 tips for growing in your relationship with Satan? Probably not, no. What are these teachings? What are the teachings of demons? What was that? Okay, all paths lead to God. That's a pretty demonic teaching. It sounds nice, right? It sounds like a nice thing to say to people. All paths lead to God, but where does that really leave people? It leads them away from Christ. Because there is only one path to God, according to Christ himself, and it's him. It's through him. So yeah, that's a teaching of demons. All paths lead to God. And that is, I don't know if I'd say the most popular, but probably one of the most popular sayings or teachings, right? That's the kind of things that Oprah would say or other very, very famous people with big platforms would say, right? Teaching of demons right there. What else? Live your best life now. Okay. I mean, just hearing that, if we're Christians and this is our best life, what do we have to look forward to? What's Heaven. Heaven's not going to be any better than this then, right? And that's just one aspect of that, but yeah, that's, that's a teaching of demons. Yeah. The better you are here, the better you will be in heaven. Okay, okay, so perhaps connected to your salvation that doing good here is somehow tied to your salvation works yeah so that we contribute to our salvation somehow by doing good things yeah absolutely teaching of demons because what does that do what does that replace right replaces grace the gift of salvation it replaces Christ and his work on the cross it says Thanks for the help, Jesus. Wasn't quite good enough. Let me, let me help you out a little bit. Right. Brings glory to ourselves instead of God. Absolutely. Yeah. Teachings of demons. And there are many, many, many more. But one key factor, I think, in all of them is, is they sound okay. They sound good. They sound like they're inclusive, right? Let's bring everybody in. Politically correct. You could say that. Yeah. And the teachings of demons are never promoted as teachings of demons. And like I said, they don't see it on the cover, so I can differentiate, oh, i got here a Christian teaching of demons. Ooh, yeah, I don't want that. Okay, it's not like that. It's, it's promoted as Christian. It's meant to deceive. And it's taught by, put together by, professing Christians. Um, it's the kind of thing that well-meaning Christians have in their homes for years. They've maybe read several times and don't even know that it's right from Satan's publishing house, right? Because it can sound so good with a verse here and a verse there, a little twisting here and a little twisting there. It can sound really good. But these are anything that opposes the teachings and purposes of Christ. Okay? It's not, we're not waiting for a, a red man with horns and a pitchfork to come reveal himself and be running around, right? Uh, That's that's not what we're looking for. It's going to be deceptive. And it's so easy to find yourself opposed to Christ. Very easy. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We'll see an an example of this. How quickly and easily one can find themselves opposed to Christ. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What happened? Peter, who just four verses earlier, Jesus had blessed him because through the Holy Spirit, he proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and Jesus offered Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What happened? Peter aligned himself with the work of Satan. Peter's not a Satan worshiper, but he found himself in a place where Jesus actually called him Satan. Get behind me, right? Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross. And then under the guise of protecting Jesus and his reputation, Peter found himself not wanting Christ to go to the cross. Peter thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was on the right track. But he had become an enemy of Christ by unwittingly agreeing with Satan. Could there be anything more anti-Christ than trying to prevent him from from the the atoning for the sins of the world? And that's where Peter found himself. How quickly, um, you know, I was about to say innocently, but it's not innocent. Um, But we can find ourselves opposed to Christ while thinking we're doing the right thing. And what else does John say marks the antichrists plural in our passage? As we look at the next verse, we will see at least one characteristic of the antichrists who have already come. Look at verse 19 with me in our in our passage in 1 John. Oh, I got to get back there now. Okay, we're going to look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, so what do we learn about those who come and attend the church from that passage? What could we say? What, What statement could we say about those who come and attend the church? Is that? They're not all of us, right? Not everyone that attends church or even comes on a regular basis is a Christian. Something else we learn from John here is that God has given the church this instruction as a tool of discernment. Okay, what do antichrists eventually do? They leave the church. Okay, what did John say? This proves they were never Christians. That's what he meant here when he says, they were not of us. They may have attended regularly. They may have served, ministered to people. They may have even taught, but they were not Christians. And it was able to be hidden for a long time, sometimes shorter than others, Okay, but they were not Christians. And we think about it, really, this is a gift for Christians from God. Notice that John says they did not, continue with the church, and he says, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We we need to know. We can know. And God says here that they depart so it will be made plain. In other words, so it will be clear that they were never Christians. If they were, they would have stayed. They, They wouldn't have departed. Now, sadly, when When they leave, they often leave a trail of pain and confusion behind through slander and gossip and lies, false teachings. They leave destruction and often take others with them, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right. The point here is that it only takes one doing the bidding of the devil to infect the whole church. Okay, that is what they're doing, right? They're, they're doing the bidding of the devil even though they, they would deny that and even believe they're doing God's work. Look at Paul before he was converted. Okay, he was destroying the church, going house to house, ravaging the church, some translations say. He was thinking he was doing God's work. Look what Turn with me to John 8. Well, look at what Jesus said about the Pharisees. John chapter 8, and we'll look at verses 42 through 47. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Okay, you are of your father, the devil. But they wouldn't have said that, right? What was their their claim right before that? Was they're of their father Abraham? Okay, they they wouldn't have believed that about themselves, but they were. Nevertheless, doing the work of Satan. And Jesus was was calling them out on that. They were were blind. They could not see or hear the truth because Jesus said, why? Because they're not of God. So they can't hear from him. They can't hear his words. Um, That's the same thing with the antichrists that have gone out into the world and are in the church. They're doing the bidding of their father, the devil. Though they wouldn't claim that, they, they might not even recognize that. Nevertheless, that's what's going on. If they are unbelievers causing division and teaching false things and uh, doctrines of demons, and they are doing the work of Satan. Okay? Eventually they'll leave, and that, that's a good thing. God calls the church to get rid of the evil that's in it. We should know that God uses these uh, antichrists and their evil acts to purge his church as well. Okay? When they, they leave and take others with them, God is cleansing His bride. Okay? Sometimes that has to happen in the church. But this isn't to be confused with a church that apostatizes and, and true Christians have to leave that congregation. Okay? It's not the same thing. Christians should flee from churches that no longer hold to the sound doctrines of the Word of God. Okay? If, if shepherds of God's flock depart from the Word, either uh, by not even opening the Bible anymore, or whenever they do, they they twist the words of God, then Christians need to lovingly bring it to the attention of the leadership. And if leadership won't come back to faithfulness to the word of God and refuses to listen, then you're left with the the only option is leaving. Okay? I mean, maybe they made an error one week and you bring it to their attention and they acknowledge it and they make it right. And that's one thing. But those who who openly and plainly Ignore the Word of God and twist the Word of God and teach false doctrines. Um, Christians can't remain there. Okay? That's not what John is talking about. This is about the true church and the Antichrists that are that are in it. Um, beware of them. They will leave eventually, but perhaps not before years and years of damage and destruction through deception and being opposed to the work, to the word. And to the purposes of Christ. Right? I, probably many of you have experienced the, the destruction in churches from, from those who are not true believers, though they would profess to be. And we, we can know from this passage that they depart the church, they never were believers. Okay? Look with, with me, though, at the joyful part of this passage, verse 20. Because okay? those are kind of downer things, but they're things that the church needs to know. But look in verse twenty. John says, "But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge." Okay. When John uses the word "but" here, he's he's separating or making a distinction between what he's been saying um, about the Antichrist and what he's about to say. He's contrasting the Antichrist in this passage with those who are truly in Christ, and he calls them "you." Okay. Who are the you? The children he's writing to, Christians, they're, they're the you. And John loves his children in the faith. And here's, he's encouraging them in the truth. What he's writing here is meant to be an encouragement to the true Christians as they hear this. In a group of people where there may be somebody who's a false Christian, and those that are true Christians, this might have a different effect on them. This would have an effect of encouragement on those that are true Christians. And for those that are false Christians, they would probably find it, uh, a bitter pill, okay, maybe even convicting. Or they may still be in a place of denial of their doing the work of the devil and, and not believe that's them. Okay, but, but to those who find themselves in that place, this should be a conviction to them. But to Christians, to true Christians, this is meant to be an encouragement. Okay, um, what, what John means here, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Okay, what he means there is that they, the true Christians have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And this is not what some people have made it out to be. It's not something that has to be done over and over again. Okay, or that Christians have to beg God for each time they come to church or enter into some ministry. Okay, when a person comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment that happens, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they have everything God intends for them to have to live a godly life in pursuing Christ-likeness. Everything. You have everything that God intends for you to have. It's not something you have to keep begging God for. You are a Christian. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we can be encouraged by that. Okay, and that's what, that's what he's after there. He wants them to be encouraged by that. Um, and that's why he says at the end of verse 20, and you all have knowledge. Okay, we know this to be true. They know this to be true because of the knowledge that has been given to them. By the sheer fact that uh, of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are given and have knowledge. They did, the Christians that John was writing to, and we do today as Christians. Okay, we have this knowledge. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that God, that powerful God, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the knowledge that he's talking about. It's the same news, the same thing Paul wanted the Colossian Christians to be aware of and to be encouraged by and to remember. Okay, he wrote to them in Colossians 2, 1-3, and he said, "...for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mis- mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." That's the same thing John is after here. The same thing Paul was talking to the Colossians about. The treasure of wisdom and knowledge are not, however, hidden from those who are in Christ. God gives abundantly to his children. And so that's what John is after here. Yes, there's these antichrists. Yes, they're doing these things, the bidding of the devil, and they're in the church, maybe even causing problems, and they'll leave, maybe even take people with them. But... But you're anchored in the truth, the truth of your salvation in Jesus Christ, as testified by the Holy Spirit that indwells you. That's what John's after. Same thing Paul was after with the Colossians, and we see that in other parts of Scripture as well. God gives knowledge to his children. And prior to God giving the Holy Spirit at salvation, we don't, people don't understand the Scriptures. They don't have the encouragement of the Scriptures. Okay. So John wants the Christians to know the difference between themselves and the antichrists that will be revealed to have been among them. And again, sometimes they may not be there very long. Sometimes they may be in a church for years and years. Even though they hear the gospel over and over and over, their hearts are hard, okay, and they have not received the gospel. They have not come to faith in Christ, though they profess to. Uh, eventually that will be revealed. Um, a lot of times in, pain, in painful circumstances for other people as well. But, this is something that God uses to, to purge evil from his church, to cleanse his church. And we can grow from it and learn from it. And remember as Christians, come back to the truth of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the truth of our hope in Christ um, through salvation. He's saying to you, have, you have knowledge, you have the truth. That is what he gets at in the next verse, which we don't have time for tonight. Um, he, in fact, tells them that he's, he's writing this to them because because they do possess this knowledge. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know this. You know this. So this is a, he's wanting to emphasize this, the, the knowledge they have. So we'll get to that next time, including more about what reveals a person who's actually um, an antichrist. Okay? So we'll get to that that next time. So uh, that's all for tonight. We'll close in prayer, and then we'll have a time of Q&A. If, if anybody wants to stick around for that, um, stay as long as, as long as you like. Father in heaven, we thank you again for tonight, and thank you for um, John's writings, Lord, that you, through your spirit, inspired, Lord, that we would know as Christians a couple of things, at least, Lord, that that those who depart from the faith, those who depart from the church never were truly truly Christians, and we don't need to be in fear of that, Lord. And I pray, Father, that, that we would examine our own lives, in light of all that we've seen in in John's writings here in in 1 John. Um, Lord, I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the encouragement through these words tonight. Lord, that we have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. It is a seal testifying to our salvation in Christ, not of ourselves, but of the work of Christ through faith in him. We thank you, Father, for it. What an amazing gift. Thank you for teaching us through your word. I pray, Lord, that these, these words would, would ring in our hearts and our minds throughout the week. Uh, and we thank you that you continually teach us through your spirit. We are so encouraged to be in Christ. Lord, help us to be discerning, help us to know what is false from what is true. We thank you for the truth, as Jesus declared, that your word is truth. And that is what you use to sanctify us. We're so grateful.